Solana chose Rust as their core programming language. And the reason that this is important to me is that there's already Rust developers. There's tons of them. Rust is a systems level language that's been around for many years. And most importantly, there's a community of developers behind Rust. And so anytime an L1 creates a new programming language or any technology creates a new programming language, you're introducing friction to getting developers to adopt it. Hey, Joe, welcome to the Open Metaverse podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Joe, to kick things off, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your crypto origin story? Sure. So I've been a um, technologist and a trader going on 23 years now. I've kind of spent the majority of my career flip-flopping between you know finance and tech. Uh, I used to be a trader on Wall Street a long time ago and then um, got you know into tech full-time joined a startup and then within a few years launched my own startup called node source which is the node.js company it's an open source enterprise infrastructure company uh, bootstrapped that business and raised over 40 million venture sold the company in 2019 uh, i actually got active in crypto in 2016 uh, much more active in 2017 given the the bull market um, and i just had never really seen a market kind of so dislocated in my life. <laughs> you just had these, you know, 10,000 basis point arbitrages lasting for weeks. Um, but in addition to that, crypto uh, was very much the opposite of Wall Street. It was open. And that was very consistent with my philosophy on software in general. And if crypto was going to kind of be the digitization of, of money and value transfer, it made sense for a lot of the stuff to be open and open source. Um, so I actually, in 2018, um, I moved out of the CEO role of my company into the chairman role and took some time off and started writing some quantitative and systematic trading strategies for crypto. Got recruited to join Passport Capital, which is an institutional hedge fund in, in San Francisco to run their quant and systematic trading desk for crypto. So did that for a bit. Left in 2019, uh, primarily because it's just really hard to trade crypto at a US-based hedge fund. Um, even today, it's still very difficult. So back in 2019, you can imagine uh, the challenges. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time doing R&D in Crypto Web 3 at that time. Um, so, you know, whether it was digging into the Ethereum community, it was uh, writing Solidity-based applications, understanding that developer ecosystem. You know, one of the benefits to running an open source business is you get really good, you have to get really good at understanding what makes developers tick, uh, particularly in open source ecosystems and communities. And so, you know, checking out the Ethereum community, uh, checking out the Cosmos community, and then uh, ended up uh, investigating Solana. Um, was very early to Solana, very fortunately early early to Solana, but it wasn't just because I was lucky. It was because I actually you know, read the source code, evaluated the technical architecture of the, the protocol of the network, and looked at the team behind it. You know, Anatoly is probably one of the best distributed systems engineers on the planet, um, certainly in the top 10. I would say. And so, you know, kind of looked at, at what they were doing and, and thought to myself, wow, if this thing could, could do what they say it could do, it's wildly undervalued and the project will probably have a lot of uh, momentum behind it. So 
kind of fast forward a couple of years, um, I ended up uh, getting recruited to join Microsoft and their cloud and AI organization. And my, my job loosely was kind of to help them not miss the next big thing. So you can imagine I spent a lot of my time doing R&D in Crypto and Web3 uh, and ultimately left in, in um, uh, 2021 when... Um, late 2021, uh, because I was approached by a close friend of mine, uh, who's a very successful VC named Steve Jang, to come run a, a crypto fund at his at his firm. And I politely declined uh, because I'm an entrepreneur. I, I was going to do, if I was going to do a fund, I was going to do it myself. And he said, I, I knew you were going to say that. Let me help you launch a fund. And so we had some discussions and he said, oh, by the way, uh, I preemptively kind of pitched you to Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon and they want to be the first money into your to your fund. And I was like, well, how do you pass that up, right? So I launched Asymmetric uh, in 2022. Um, Asymmetric is a uh, an investment firm where we we kind of run it like a technology company, but we are uh, you know an investment firm. So we have an early stage venture capital fund that invests in you know pre-seed, seed, sometimes Series A, um, but basically you know first check in into crypto web three related companies and protocols. And then we also have a discretionary long short crypto hedge fund. So it's not a long only fund. Um, it's purely, you know, a, a fund that we're looking to generate returns based on our, our current views and how we want to express those views, whether they're long term or short term, et cetera. So quite a journey. I think you have established that you're a polymath. Um, so, so Joe, you mentioned Solana. And and you also mentioned that you looked into it from a deep technical architecture as well as source code viewpoint. So from an architectural standpoint, can you decode for our audience why Solana is unique and scales well? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think it, it is um, it is intimidating to try to read this lot of code base. <laughs> it's 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 uh, some black magic underneath the hood there. Um, so what I try to do is I try to use, you know, metaphors or analogies to explain the difference between, you know, uh, Solana's approach to being an L1 versus what most people are familiar with, which is Ethereum. Um, so, you know, the, the, the easiest way to think about it is, is if you, if you think about your computer, um, you have a CPU and a GPU in there and, and, you know, over time, um, CPUs started to really improve on their performance because they were able to execute instructions in parallel, right? So instead of something being what we call single threaded, right? Just, it can only do things in a kind of like a sequential order with one process. You could have maybe like four things happening at the exact same time. And this is just a very, you know, common uh, approach to in increasing the efficiency of something and the speed of it by parallelizing it, right? If, for example, you walk into, I don't know, a coffee shop and there's one cash register to go up and, you know, buy your coffee, well, then there's going to be a queue of people all waiting to go to that one cash register. Whereas if you have four, you have people all walking up, you know, you can handle four times as many customers. That is the kind of very high level as it relates to why Solana is highly performing and can scale at the capacity that it can. It operates in a way that allows for the parallelization of transactions to be executed um, at the same time. And the, the reason this is, I think, novel and unique is that no one else is doing it this way for the most part. Now, 
I, I should say with a caveat there, some of the new uh, move language based chains like SWE and Aptos have similar characteristics, which makes sense because Solana did it first, right? Like they're saying, wait a second, we should actually just utilize what we know to be, you know, common in computer science for quite some time, which is parallel processing. And so Solana's approach to it, why I was kind of intrigued by it is it followed a similar pattern of just technology in general. Over time, things get faster and better. And the parallelization pattern was very clear to me. It's not a, a judgment against Ethereum's approach. I mean, Ethereum candidly was a huge leap in computer science, the first smart contract platform ever, right? But the design uh, didn't necessarily enable uh, out of the box this kind of parallelized approach to handling transactions. So let me kind of like break down parallel uh, transaction execution, if you will. So if I want to send you, Betty, uh, you know, a token, like I want to send you some USDC, well, I have a wallet, you have a wallet, and we have wallet balances. That transaction, you know, these two wallets, you know, have to kind of be involved in the same transaction. So Conversely, though, if if I'm sending you a token and Bob is sending Alice a token, well, me sending you a token doesn't affect Bob and Alice, right? The state of those wallets are exclusive. There's no there's no reliance or dependency on what happens with Bob and Alice's wallet with respect to Joe and Medi. And so Solana embraces this and says, hey, as long as like the global state of the of the chain uh, is it impacted, we can execute those transactions at the exact same time. And so that's a very kind of uh, simplistic way of thinking about parallel processing on Solana. And it is one of the reasons why at just a very fundamental level, it is simply able to to be you know a high throughput, low latency uh, blockchain. And so because of this, Joe, um, it also scales vertically, like as the nodes become more powerful, and, and as time passes through, it can process more. Is that correct? That's right. There isn't uh, there isn't a hard cap, so to speak, on like, oh, well, if you have a thousand validators, each, each incremental validator added doesn't improve anything. It's actually not true. Um, the way that the, the network has been designed is that as you add more val validators, it doesn't necessarily uh, decrease performance. It just improves decentralization. And I think this is another uh, unfortunate, uh, you know, bit of FUD that you hear around the Solana ecosystem is like, oh, it's it's you know centralized. There's only a handful of validators, or they're controlled by those people. It is utterly nonsense. If you look at the actual data behind it, you can see that. Solana actually has thousands of validators that are geographically distributed all over the world and has fewer validators running in, say, Amazon Web Services data centers than Ethereum. And so, you know, I think one of the things that I try to highlight to folks is like, look, you should, you should, you know, truly be skeptical of any L1, especially one that suggests that they're going to be super fast and perform it, et cetera. But the data doesn't really lie. And so when you look at how um, all these additional validators are being added to the network, uh, you can see empirically that it is becoming more and more decentralized. And so one of the, I think, you know, uh, kind of uh, benefits to being a Solana bull, I'm not a Solana maxi, but I am a Solana bull and have been for quite some time, is that 
every single aspect that I think a lot of folks that are trying to discredit Solana have just been proven time and again to be false. And so if you if you're thinking about uh, you know as a developer building on Solana, we've had incredible reliability since some of the bu bugs have been fixed over the past couple of years. If you're an investor looking at Solana, uh, I think you can also you know surmise that the majority of the the negative kind of headlines, if you will, are empirically proven to be false. So, Joe, you mentioned one of the reasons you buy you are a Solana bull is, in essence, because of parallel execution. But Aptos, Sui, and Monad, they also have similar ability. So, are you? Is it kind of safe to assume that you also like these systems? Yeah. So, I mean, I like look. I like Ethereum too, right? I mean, I think the the, the question really is 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 as a developer. And again, you know, my, my background for 20 years is understanding, you know, developer ecosystems and, and kind of the tech community. Certainly the past 15 years, I've been deeply involved in open source. My experience in that has, has provided me, I think, a, a somewhat unique investment view, if you will, into things like L1s. And so one of the challenges, and this is, this is, has to do with Ethereum and Aptos and Suite, uh, is that as a developer, well, if I want to build on Ethereum, I need to learn a new programming language. I need to learn Solidity. Uh, as a developer, if I want to build on Aptos or Suite, I have to learn a new programming language, Move. And developers learn new programming languages. That's not new. But the point that I'm identifying is that Solana chose Rust as their core programming language to build you know, smart, uh, Solana programs, aka smart contracts. For Solana. And the reason that this is important to me is that there's already Rust developers. There's tons of them. Rust is a systems level language that's been around for many years, that's battle tested, that has loads of tooling, uh, security uh, capabilities. The, the language is constantly improving. And most importantly, there's a community of developers behind Rust, as well as best practices and patterns that already exist. And so anytime an L1 creates a new programming language or any technology creates a new programming language, you're introducing friction to getting developers to adopt it, right? And I think that that is the key kind of, another key component as to why my investment thesis on Solana was higher is, is that yes, there's all these amazing kind of performance characteristics, but the way that they're going to market to target developers is very thoughtful and in line with how these things have worked in the past. So as new technologies kind of sprout up, the ones that require a new programming language to be learned tend to not do as well as those that are adopting a well-known and, and kind of battle-tested programming language. There's an example of this that, you know, the engineers at Google are some of the smartest software developers on earth. That is, I don't think that's a, you know, a uh, controversial statement to make. And, and Google many years ago released this framework called Dart, and you had to learn a new programming language more or less to use it. Well, Dart never took off. And if, if a company like Google, which literally prints money every single day, it can plow millions and millions and millions of dollars into promoting you know, a new technology and trying to get developers to adopt it, and it doesn't work, it kind of raises the question like, well, why... Would that all of a sudden be the case for Aptos or Suite? Why would that all of a sudden be the case for something like Solidity uh, with Syria? 
Now, granted, again, Ethereum was first, and so there is a critical mass behind that. And candidly, the venture capital community has poured an unbelievable amount of money into that space that it's going to have to work, right? But again, as I zoom out and say, well, you know, I didn't do Ethereum's ICO. Where can I invest now that makes the most sense? And I go back to a very simple principle, which is if you want to make money in tech, follow developers. And if developers are adopting a new technology, there's value there. So, Joe, I want to shift gears a bit. Um, you mentioned, like, we know Solana is an integrated slash monolithic chain. What do you think are some of the hidden costs of being a monolithic or integrated chain versus, let's say, uh, being a modular chain? Yeah, this is a, a debate that's that's been raging in in software development for I would say close to forty five, if not fifty years. And so, to answer the question, let me kind of like zoom out historically. There's there's this concept of a monolithic application or monolithic architecture versus what we call a service oriented architecture. And this service oriented architecture is consistent with the modular, you know, blockchain kind of hypothesis, if you will. This is not new. This argument or this kind of debate around which one is better has been around for decades. It's just now being applied to blockchains. And so I think the natural progression of the modular debate has stemmed from the fact that a lot of what has been the challenges, I should say, associated with the Ethereum ecosystem has to do with its scalability issues, right? This is not a, a judgment against Ethereum. It's just a physics problem. They just, it's not designed to be a high throughput, you know, highly scalable and performant chain. So what inevitably happens? Well, the Ethereum community has more or less said L2s are going to be the way that we end up scaling Ethereum, at least currently, right? There's protodank sharding and that is incredible, you know, kind of academic engineering exercise, which may or may not come true, but as we sit here today, L2s are kind of the way that we're going to scale Ethereum. Well, then that opens up the idea of, well, what if we then, you know, move execution out and data availability and all of these other aspects of Ethereum's L1 into kind of separate services, right? Service-oriented architecture. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, the challenge in any debate between monolithic versus, you know, service-oriented architectures is there's trade-offs. And so, for example, over the course of the past, call it 15 years, with the rise of cloud computing, there was this huge shift in the developer community towards what are called microservices. It's just another implementation of this service-oriented architecture kind of argument that's been around for decades. And microservices took off during cloud computing because you could spin up, you know, a little tiny, a little service or an app, if you will, that all it does is handle, you know, users logging into your website. Like that's the only thing that it does. Well, the challenge with this is that as your application grows, you end up with thousands of microservices. And so, you know, I've shared this on Twitter before. If you look up, a, there's an Uber diagram of their set of microservices and it's massive. So the issue with that is, is not, hey, this is bad. It's that now you have traded off uh, the kind of, simplicity of having everything in one location, a monolith, and having it spread out with hundreds, if not thousands of different services. And so that trade-off can be the complexity of managing that. It can be network latency. So these services all got to talk to each other. 
And as that relates to, you know, the debate within L1s, um, I think you will run into the same trade-offs. It is too early to say, because we don't, we haven't really seen evidence yet of loads of applications that have adopted this kind of uh, modular approach. I think there is a, a good chance that we will see applications adopting it, but there's nothing wrong with one or the other, that it is simply a trade-off. What I do think as it relates to, to Solana is that if I get back to, again, the developer uh, experience of building on, say, a, mono, a monolithic chain or integrated chain like Solana, is that as a developer, if I just have one place to focus on to build my application versus I need to tie in with Celestia or this other you know, cross-chain messaging protocol or how am I getting execution or how am I handling scaling or which scaling solution am I using? Am I toggling between the two? All of those kind of mental gymnastics that a developer has to do slows down their ability to ship an application. And so again, I'm not suggesting that applications won't be built with a uh, you know, uh, modular architecture. I would just argue that the trade-off is going to be how quickly can you get developers to build in this kind of disparate system relative to one where it's you know tightly integrated. So Joe, just for from an analogy standpoint, would it be correct to say Solana is trying to be like iOS and Ethereum or EVM is trying to be like Android? That is probably one of the best analogies how I've explained it. Um, I think my, my, my friend Chris Berniski and his team uh, explained it like that as well. Um, Android is is an open source operating system that is adopted by OEMs, right? Any Anybody can just take the Android operating system and pretty much use it to how they see fit. Whereas, you know, Apple controls up and down, not only the software, but also the hardware. And so although Android's market share is significantly higher, Apple's the, you know, the, the largest, I think the largest company or the second largest like, toggles between them and Aramco out of Saudi Arabia, the, the most valuable company on earth. And, and their uh, ability to generate high value for this kind of vertically integrated, almost monolithic view is just incredible. Um, so I do think that there is there is a, a strong analogy there. But again, hey, Google's doing pretty good too, right? Their, their, their business model was, we don't care about necessarily making money on the hardware, where that's Apple's core business. We want people to be using Google search everywhere. So let's just saturate the, the mobile market with this free operating system that any phone you know, uh, uh, manufacturer can adopt. And now, presto, we've got Google search available there. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. But as it relates to, say, Solana versus Ethereum or Solana versus any other L1s, um, I think that that kind of holds true, is that Solana is enabling folks to have this kind of tightly integrated, vertically integrated solution that is super fast, dirt cheap, that enables and will enable, uh, and I guess is enabling these kind of, you know, true consumer-grade applications to be built on top. So Joe, I'm going to double-click on Solana ecosystem. And one thing I observed was Jump, which is a big market maker, uh, have produced a lot of applications for Solana ecosystem. Um, the Pyth, which is Oracle, Firedancer, which will be a new client, uh, validator client, Wormhole, which is a bridge. 
So what are your thoughts on that? Like, what do you think the, the integration between them and the Solana ecosystem and what's the end game for them? Yeah, great question. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with the guys at Jump. We've done deals together. Um, I think it's important to understand the kind of history of Jump. Um, so Jump is probably the greatest, if not one of the greatest, you know, kind of call it algorithmic and syst- you know, kind of systematic market makers on earth. And, and they operate in effectively every capital market. And they pretty much make money every single day and have for like 20 plus years, right? They, they just really don't tend to lose. And the reason is, is that they have incredibly powerful software and hardware. So a lot of people don't know this about Jump is that they actually create what are called, you know, custom FPGAs or, you know, people in, in, in crypto may be familiar with what an ASIC miner is, right? It's a, it's a miner that's specifically designed. All it does is, you know, mine Bitcoin, for example. Um, they do that for their trading systems. And that vertical integration has enabled them to be wildly successful. They're also a private company. They have no outside capital. No one is invested in them. It's all their own balance sheet, et cetera. And they've done extremely well. And so you say, well, they've got this amazing market making business. Why would they, why would they uh, jump into crypto? Well, if you're a market maker, you make money making markets on the spread, right? Well, you can't really do that in Ethereum. Right, Uniswap is is not a central limit order book, and the the spread between what you end up paying in a swap on Uniswap is 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 crazy high, and it's also less frequent. Right, so Uniswap, there's no kind of like high frequency or even semi frequent trading on something like Uniswap. Um, Solana, on the other hand, has the ability, and we've seen this with Serum, which is now uh, I think it's called Open Book. Um, and myriad others. You've got Phoenix, you've got Cube coming out. These folks that are basically building central limit order books, which is a standard order book for all capital markets. So Jump looks at this and goes, Solana is actually capable of enabling us to make markets on chain. Well, remember, Jump is not in the business of charity. They're in a business to make money. And so their kind of adoption and uh, uh contributions to the Solana ecosystem, let's be clear, is to make money, right? Uh, it is not some sort of um, charity organization that they're running as it relates to their crypto business. And so what have they done? Well, you know, they, they've contributed a ton to open source. Um, in addition to that, to your point, they uh, helped you know, kind of spearhead the Pith network, which is a decentralized Oracle system. Well, why would they do that? Well, because they want to make sure that people are publishing prices that are accurate on chain that, you know, market makers can utilize to publish and, and trade accurate prices. Um, the Fire Dancer client, when this was announced, a huge uh, vote of confidence from, from Jump. If, if Jump was going to, you know, throw in the towel and exit the crypto industry because of what happened in 2022, they would not be working on Fire Dancer. And... So for those that aren't aware, Firedancer is a is a client that runs um, right now. the The kind of primary client on Solana is the is the is the validator client that Solana Labs actually put out. Um, Cheeto also has you know their kind of MEV boosted client, and the the but Firedancer has um, probably one of the smartest you know engineers in distributed systems and high frequency systems and hardware ever uh, working on it. And um, 
this this approach that they're taking with Fire Dancer is consistent with what is really only possible on Solana is that they are now able to get 10 million transactions per second on commodity hardware. That is truly unbelievable uh, given the the challenges of with being able to have that level of throughput on a global state machine of any blockchain. And so their kind of end goal, just to kind of wrap up the thought, is their goal is to make money, right? Their goal is to to market make. And I think their view is that you're going to see more and more assets get tokenized and more and more of these assets are going to trade on chain. And well, more of these assets are going to trade on Solana because currently it's the only one that can handle this level of throughput. And furthermore, they're investing in making that happen through things like Pith as well as Financer. And one other thing I'll, I'll point out is that uh, the, there's a 2.0 version of Pith that's going to be coming out soon uh, that is actually a fork of Solana, right? So they're, they're basically creating an application-specific chain, which there's a myriad of these in the kind of Cosmos ecosystem using Tendermint, but they chose to fork Solana. Why did they do that? Because it's the most performant and high-throughput chain out there. And so even the kind of Pith decentralized Oracle, the 2.0 version when it comes out, is actually a fork of Solana because the tech is that good. And so the, the the point that I'm making is is that if the folks at Jump didn't believe in the technology of, of Solana, they wouldn't be doing any of this. So, Joe, you mentioned assets. The, the end goal is to trade assets. So I'm assuming it's more than digital. I'm assuming they are also thinking about the optionality of RWA. So let's double click on this. What do you think about RWA and what do you think what do you think they would be thinking about RWA? How they will be thinking about RWA? First, as, as I think about RWAs, I've been in crypto long enough to, to you know, uh, know that this narrative has evolved and has been kind of pitched for many years. And it turns out that the most successful RWA today is USDC. USDC is a digital version of the US dollar backed by, you know, cash and also ultimately US treasuries. So we actually have, you know, precedence here of how to build a successful uh, on-chain RWA, the US dollar. And I think Circle's done an amazing job, all things considered, with the challenges in the ecosystem, particularly the regulatory environment in the United States, of creating what I would say is the canonical example of how to do real world assets. Um, well, what does that mean for other assets? So you could think of, you know, um, mortgage bonds or corporate credit or gold or pick some sort of asset that you want to put uh, and tokenize and put on chain. I think that this is certainly possible, but I think it's somewhat path dependent. And I think what's more probable is what you end up with is current large incumbent financial product companies um, taking their existing products in TradFi that exist today and tokenizing them using a similar model that Circle uses with the US dollar and USDC. So let me walk through an example of what I mean by this. Um, let's assume that a company makes ETFs. And so you can go on, you know, the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, and you can just buy and sell these ETFs, right? Well, that's a financial product. That is a, you know, in some cases, it's a real world asset 
as an exchange traded fund, right? You can get exposure to gold, you can get exposure to oil, you can get exposure to the S&P 500, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, those only trade, you know, five days a week from 9.30 Eastern time to 4 p.m. and maybe a little bit pre and, and after hour market trading. And those ETF businesses make money based on the transactions, right? The the, the fees that, that they collect on, on uh, people buying and selling those ETFs. Um, well, why wouldn't they want 24-7 trading? But, you know, I, I mean, think about it. If you're an ETF-based company, you're already making money doing, you know, the standard Monday through Friday during regular business hours. But what if you could take those ETFs and tokenize them? And now you have the ability to make even more money because people can trade ETFs 24-7. And in fact, uh, you know, there were some exchanges that did this, uh, I think in 2020, 2021 timeframe where they started to put, you know, Tesla and the SPY and QQQ, et cetera, on these exchanges. Now that wasn't on chain, but there was demand for folks that still wanted to trade this sort of stuff. So my view on RWAs is that I think the end goal of we want mortgage bonds and corporate credit and all of these other types of real world assets on chain is path dependent as it relates to the regulatory environment to kind of unlock that. But I think what can push that forward is going to be uh, the incumbent financial product companies that want to make more money with their products by enabling these 24-7, 365 trading environments, which it only can happen right now in a tokenized world. So Joe, from a timing perspective, we saw stable coins do really well. So I think in, in terms, apart from ETF, but in, in terms of alignment, in terms of timing, which asset do you kind of see next in line that gets tokenized? Oh man, that's a good question. Um, hmm. Well, I mean, we have started to see U.S. Treasuries specifically be tokenized, so that that is happening. Um, if I had to guess, uh, I would probably lean towards what I was just referring to as like you know the guys that that make ETFs. Um, I think that that path is going to be easier than say somebody trying to figure out how to tokenize oil um, or or tokenize you know mortgage bots or something I, I and furthermore like the the banks that kind of control these products um, they're probably going to want to do that anyway and so they already have a leg up because they already have those types of products currently the banks in the US certainly don't want to touch crypto so you know there is an opportunity for startups to try to go and attempt that but I think the the challenges of getting that done from an operational and regulatory standpoint are challenging. So to me, I think the easiest path is you could see things like tokenized stocks. You could see things like tokenized ETFs that kind of already operate like this, you know, tokenized type product, but they just move them on chain. To me, that just feels like probably the path of least resistance. But I, I've seen, you know, startup founders pitch me tokenized gold. I've probably seen half a dozen of these pitches. Um, I just think that you know, the incumbent financial product companies are going to do the, the the easiest path of taking what they're already doing and just put those on chain first. I concur. I kind of share a similar view. I feel like we'll see more quality asset first. And then we'll, in terms of risk spectrum, we'll go into the deeper stuff, like let's say real estate, fractionalized watches. I think 
treasury ETF might come first than that. Um, so Joe, what are some of the experiments happening in Solana ecosystem that you're excited about or perhaps even have invested? Yeah, so uh, man, there's a, there's a lot of really cool stuff happening in Solana. Um, you know, I, I I was told by some of the folks at Solana that I was the original guy to tweet only possible in Solana. So I will gladly take credit for that meme. Uh, I think it's actually the tagline for the current hackathon. Uh, it's a little little back padding for for Joe. Um, some of the things that are truly only possible on Solana are um, things like dialect. So, so dialect uh, is a kind of like a um, you know a messaging app that has the ability for you to kind of mint these NFT based stickers uh, within the chats and you know trade them, buy and sell them. You can join the community of folks that hold these you know NFT stickers, etc. And so. You know, depending on your view, you may look at that and go like, that's cute, but that's not really all that groundbreaking. Well, if you, you know, if you look at places like Japan, where the app line has stickers and it's huge, and you look at, you know, WeChat and Weibo and in China, stickers are huge. Uh, This is, you know, there's some sort of prior art here to suggest that, like, actually, this is a sticky way to get people to engage. The difference is, is that you own the stickers, Right you actually have some level of ownership associated with this. And so what I like about the dialect experiment that is working really well is that it's utilizing a technology that is literally only possible on Solana, which are uh, which is you know these state compression state compression enabling these NFTs to be minted um, in the millions for just you know a few dollars. Uh, today there's literally no other chain you can do that on. And that to me is really exciting because we're just starting to scratch the surface of what creative people can do with this new form of technology that apply, applies some level of, of ownership to the assets that you're creating. Assets, I mean, you know, digital artifacts, if you will, whether they're NFTs or not is kind of besides the point. So dialect is is one that's, that's super interesting. Um, there on the kind of like the DeFi trading side, there's so much interesting stuff happening. So whether it's Phoenix, who's creating a, a high performance central limit order book, uh, whether it's Jito, who's creating these you know MEV boosted um, you know staking and and their liquid staking tokens, that stuff feels like a little bit of the the kind of um, evolution of what we saw in DeFi over the past cycle. But it's important because the difference is, is that, again, these things just aren't possible on other chains. And so what does that really unlock? Well, we don't know for sure yet, but we do know that, you know, people that are trading assets tend to want to trade quickly and efficiently. And I think that that is a powerful thing to do. Um, I think the last thing I'll, I'll talk about is uh, as it relates to payments, right? So there's a, there's a handful of startups we, we invested in, in one called TipLink lights out team, brilliant guys that are trying to make it so simple to send people crypto that it's just, you know, through a link, through an email, very, very simplistic way of getting people onboarded into crypto. And this is all powered by Solana. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got a a, a big startup called Visa that is now, you know, more or less adopting Solana as the chain that is, you know, worthy of proof of concept for them to, um, apply payments and transactions uh, on chain. And so, you know, if you look at 
the payments space in general, there's tons of startups, right? There's tons of startups. And then you've got the incumbents like Visa and MasterCard. And then what I would call, you know, a modern incumbent of someone like Stripe. Well, there's something to be said about enabling frictionless payments with something like Solana, because if you're using Ethereum's L1, you may wait multiple minutes and the, the cost of doing the transaction is not deterministic. So you may not actually know how much this is going to cost for me to send this, uh, you know, this bit of USDC to somebody. All of that just gets abstracted away with something like Solana. So, so I think those are some things that are super interesting to me right now. So you mentioned only on Solana and you also mentioned compressed NFTs. One thing that just came to my mind was Deepin. Uh, what what are your thoughts on Deepin from a in from a from an investor standpoint? Like I know it's a very interesting category. Uh, it's very intellectually stimulating. It's a three sided marketplace. But do you think it's investable? Yeah, I mean, well, it depends on uh, it depends on your outlook and your cost of capital, right? So, so my friends Tushar and Kyle over at at Multicoin, you know, these guys have been out in front of this from day one, and and I tip my hat to them for having the level of conviction uh, to be very early to this this narrative and and be actively investing in it. Um, they've also done extremely well as far as their venture investments and the returns that they've generated, such that they you know raised another large fund, et cetera, and so. A fund like Multicoin, I think, has not only the track record um, and I would say, you know, institutional knowledge around forming a narrative and a view on Deepin. They've also got the capital to do it. And so, you know, one of the uh, the things about Deepin that fascinates me is is the the approach to you mentioned the three sided marketplace, if you will, and. Um, We've seen a similar pattern to this about you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, where you kind of had excess capacity and then demand for that, but it wasn't being met with a kind of a market maker or a marketplace in the middle. And there's there's tons of examples of this. Uber is one of them. You had black cars sitting there idle and people needing rides. Connect them, right? Uh, Airbnb, you've got a, a, you know, a second vacation home sitting empty and you got people that want to rent it put them together. I think that people are now comfortable with this concept of, you know, uh, leasing out or enabling their excess capacity to be consumed and generating income from it. So it doesn't seem like that big of a leap that that would happen with something like Helium or the other or HiveMapper, et cetera. These other types of deep pin um, project, projects and products, because people are basically saying like, hey, I've got maybe some excess internet capacity I can offer that up and get paid in this token. Doesn't seem like that big of a leap. One of the challenges for me as an investor is that a lot of these DPIN related startups are hardware startups. And hardware is very hard to invest in because it's very expensive. The capital expenditures up front that are required for a lot of hardware-based startups are enormous. And you have to, I think, have uh, not only a very long view, but also a deep balance sheet or a deep pool of capital to invest and continue to reinvest in a lot of these companies. And again, I tip my hat to the folks at Multicoin because not only have they done this, but they've continued to do this. So I do think it is investable. I think it's a winner takes most market. Um, you'll probably see this with stuff like Helium uh, and others. Uh, so uh, are we actively investing in Deepin? Currently not out of fund one, 
primarily because of the hardware related thing that I had mentioned, but more importantly, like the fun, like the early stage stuff that we're investing in um, is very much just software specific and developer and infrastructure focused. So long story short, I do think that there is plenty of opportunity in DeepIn. Um, I think a lot of them will try and fail, which is this natural state for most startups, but the ones that actually, you know, kind of catch a, a viral moment, if you will, should be major outsized winners. Joe, for the last segment of the podcast, it's a, it's a rapid fire round. So my first question is, what's your pet peeve in Web3? Probably a lack of uh, focus on user experience. Um, you have a lot of really talented engineers out there building really cool stuff, but the end user experience is, it leaves a lot to be desired. So I think that's probably one of my biggest pet peeves is like bringing... Um, user-centric design principles to the products that people are going to be using for Web3. DAP you most frequently use? I would, I don't know if this is it. I mean, I would kind of qualify this as a DAP, but uh, I use Backpack, which is, um, a, 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 it's technically a wallet, but it actually, when I when I talked with Armani, the, one of the co-founders of it, uh, his explanation was, you know, to me, he was basically doing what effectively WeChat and Line and all these other super apps did back in the early mobile days, which is your, your, the, the, what they did was the Trojan horse was, oh, we're just a messaging app. But then eventually you do everything in there. You do social media, you do shopping, commerce, et cetera. Backpack is enabling this and they have very unique specific features that are basically only available within Backpack. And I use that all, you know, all the time. Better tech or better network effects? I would probably go with better tech because I think if you have better tech, you have a better chance of better network effects. If you have better network effects and your tech is bad, that network effect may go away. Last thing you searched on ChatGPT. <laughs> Last thing I searched, let me see. <laughs> this is a good one. Can you please identify the pros and cons of the volatility index one day, three month rolling beta to the S&P 500? That's how I spend my time with ChatGPT. Very cool. So a, a thought experiment with a yes or no answer. A fork of Solana that facilitates L2s on top. Yes, I'm, I'm pro forking. So final question in one word. Killer use case of blockchain. Uh, stable coins. Joe, it was amazing to have you on the podcast. I learned a lot about Solana ecosystem. And yeah, that's a lot of interesting stuff happening. And you articulated the ecosystem and the tech very well. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be here. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Any opinions provided in this podcast reflect the views of the speakers only.